Good afternoon. It's Monday the 4th of September 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link today, uh, we have David Scott and Mark Anderson. Uh, welcome to the programme both. Now, we're going to get kicked off today with uh, a story, a uh, health-related story. So this is a court, uh, a, a, a judgment uh, from uh, the Right Honourable Mrs Justice Roberts from the Court of Protection. And this is uh, on the matter of ST. We don't know who ST is, but ST is a, a, a female uh, patient of the National Health Service who is extremely ill. Uh, and uh, the question was one of the capacity to make medical decisions. Uh, and so the uh, judgment says this, despite all the difficulties which currently confront her, ST is able to communicate reasonably well with her doctors with assistance from her mother and on occasion, speech therapists. Over the course of the last week, she's engaged in two separate capacity assessments. I heard evidence from two consultant psychiatrists who conclusions, whose conclusions in relation to her capacity in both domains are set out in full written reports. And both those consultant psychiatrists said that this young lady had absolutely the capacity to make her own decisions about her healthcare and about her own illness. Uh, so if we bring that back on screen, uh, the judgment goes on to say she has been described uh, by those who know and love her as a fighter. Uh, that is how she sees herself. She has told her doctors that she wants to do everything she can to extend her life. Uh, she said to Dr. C, one of the psychiatrists who visited her last week, this is my wish. I want to die trying to live. Uh, we have to try everything. So absolutely clear what she wants. Uh, ST is well aware that she's been offered a very poor prognosis by her doctors. She acknowledges that they have told her that she will die, but she does not believe them. She points to her recovery from previous life-threatening episodes. While she's been a patient at the intensive care unit, she believes she has the resilience and the strength to stay alive for long enough to undergo treatment abroad, and she wishes the court to acknowledge her right to make that decision for herself. Uh, in my judgment, says the judge, ST is unable to make a decision for herself in relation to her future medical treatment, including the proposed move to palliative care, because she does not believe the information she's been given by her doctors. And David, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, because I thought this was a pretty obscene uh, judgment in this case. Uh, we have someone who's quite clearly capable of making a decision about her own health care uh, that is quite capable quite clearly determined to stay alive for as long as possible and to try absolutely everything to extend her life uh, as much as it possibly can be. But because she's decided that she doesn't believe her doctor's prognosis that she's at imminent risk of death and therefore needs to be put on palliative care straight away and wants to continue to try with health care, uh, this seems like a, a pretty obscene de decision. Utterly. I mean, th this this is getting now to a point where the courts are uh, coming up with decisions which were formerly in the realm of comedy, the, the old joke being, what's the difference between God and a doctor? And the answer is, of course, God doesn't think he's a doctor. The, the, the idea that, that the medical profession cannot be questioned, the idea that, that you are only there to obey their diktats is completely the reverse of everything that, that the medical profession ever stood for and the legal basis in this country for the delivery of medical care. And for the, to see a court throwing all that aside with such abandon is, is deeply shocking. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously we've got to see this in the context of the last two or three years. 
and particularly with respect to the potential for uh, mandatory uh, medication, including so-called vaccination. Yes, and also in uh, in, the, in the situation where we have constant pushing by private members' bills and things at this stage, but it could go further than that, could become a government policy at some point, uh, for um, assisted dying. And we know from the Canadian experience that this is now being used to uh, remove people whose uh, positions are merely inconvenient for the state or cannot be readily funded. Uh, And funding, I'm quite sure funding is a a part of this decision as well. Uh, Well, David, let's move on then to Scotland and the COVID inquiry. Yeah, so the the Scottish COVID inquiry uh, has kind of started. Uh, So we have here an introduction. The inquiry will establish facts, identify lessons to be learned and make recommendations to Scottish ministers so so, uh, we are better prepared in future. And on the 28th of August, they had their first preliminary hearing to explain how the inquiry would actually proceed. Um, On the next slide, we see that uh, they're they're tweeting out that they've launched a listening project. Let's be heard. We're inviting public to share their experiences of the pandemic and any lessons they believe should be learned. We'll find out in a moment whether anything's excluded uh, from the listening project and not being listened to at all. Um, The BBC here is reporting that the COVID, uh, that families are... Families of uh, care home um, uh, relatives are uh, demanding an apology over the uh, care home ban. Uh, Alison Leach here says um, we were treated differently to staff, so excluded from seeing the relatives. Hopefully, she says, this is never allowed to happen again. Um, And then the Times is reporting the Scottish COVID inquiry won't uh, question any politicians into 2025, by which case... Presumably, they're expecting everyone will have forgotten all about this or will be on to the next, um, the next problem focusing uh, all of the media attention. So this takes us to um, the Scottish uh, Vaccine Injured Group. They've managed to win core participation status um, at the inquiry and uh, attended that first meeting. Uh, they had three seats to attend the first meeting. And um, we have a short video here of them interacting with the media outside the venue, which is Murrayfield Stadium, um, after the initial meeting of the inquiry. So you've only got three seats today. As I said, we need we need to help and support. The, the press were all over that there. The press were actually all over that there. But us, the vaccine, didn't want to talk to us. Didn't want to talk to us. Just goes to show you. You guys work for the BBC? Yes. Do you want to get a photo of Alex Mitchell? The man? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's been affected by the, the we, vaccine. We, we could do. Um, is he going to be at the conference later? We're at the conference just now. He's right there. Can you not take a video of well, him? Well, we could now? do it right now, but I'm just thinking all our shots are people outside in the um, concourse, which just looks very samey. But everybody's, everybody's insane. We're all in this. Has together. my colleague just done this as well? Not yet. Okay. Not yet, but. 
Yeah, well, we could do is you just come in and turn around to the Okay. Are you just going to take a photo? Alex! Come! Well, he's, he's away. What did he, what, what is he taking his camera away for there? Excuse me, mate. Excuse me, mate. We're, we're, we're in the group. Do you know what he thing he is, no? And uh, we're very pleased to be joined by John Watt, who made that video uh, to talk about uh, the press response you saw there and about the COVID inquiry and how it's going. Uh, and, and John, I want to welcome you to uh, UK Column. And uh, if you could start off by uh, explaining um, the sort of response you were getting from the mainstream media. Well, I think the video pretty much explains itself there, uh, David, to be honest. Thanks for having me on, by the way. Um, yeah, I mean, we got there. And to give you just a bit of context regarding this uh, inquiry as well, uh, David, we didn't actually, we had six days notice to try and get into that inquiry. We didn't realise that there was an inquiry and the vaccine injured could get into it. We had to phone up about, I want to say we, we contacted about 20 lawyers and none of them wanted to touch us, wanted to um, to actually, what do you call it, represent us um, for that inquiry. And eventually by one of, the, one of the ladies who runs the group managed to get a lawyer very last minute. So technically we had three days to get into that inquiry because there was no advertisement and we didn't know it existed. In regards to the mainstream media, well, I said, I, I arrived there. We arrived there early. Me, a woman called Ruth and Alex, who had his leg amputated from the AstraZeneca vaccine, proven by the government and proven by the doctors, first living man to receive the £120,000 compensation scheme in, Scot in, in the UK, the whole of the UK. Now, that in itself should have been mainstream, you know, it should be front page paper, you know, back in 2021. I approached the, the, the media and I said to them, are you covering this topic today? They were like, yes, I, worked for the BBC. I, I handed them a flyer. They were very uncomfortable when I told them who I was there represent, representing today, that day. And then what happened is they took the flyer and they put it in the pocket. Now, we sat there, Alex has came down and... Then what you see as you see the lawyer coming out with all the with all the, the COVID victims and the bereaved and the care home. And you, you can see the cameras are all over. Now, at that point, they're, they're, they're away to do interviews. And I'm like, hold on, do you not want to film us? Do you want to take pictures of us? You know, and the cameras all went away. So I let them do some more interviews. At that point, I've, I've grabbed the phone. And as you can see there, I, I went to the BBC, <coughs> told them who Alex was. You know, everybody looking at me will think I'm fine. I've spent forty grand to get my life back, David. You know, so but Alex is a you can't you can't dismiss that man. You know, and we've got over two hundred people in our group, and the reason nobody knows about our group, in my honest opinion, we'd have a lot more if the mainstream media would touch this because we're having to advertise this ourselves with no funding, and it's very hard to speak about this subject, as you know, David, because we're shut down in every platform. So. Like I said, we approached them, and you, you see in the video, you know, they weren't interested. That's when Alex said, you should be ashamed of yourself. He's went away, and I've went up to the BBC, and it speaks for itself. They were willing to video everybody else. We were willing to speak to the bereaved, the COVID care homes, which they, they people deserve to be heard. But so did the vaccine injured, and we only had three seats. 
So for the next one, we'll be hopefully applying for a lot more seats and making bringing the noise. I like to say, make some more noise about this. Yes. So the this uh, the inquiry is headed by Lord Brailsford and and a, a, the quote from him, which I think he I think he said he he, he read out at the, the, the initial meeting and which kind of yeah. defines what the, the 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 inquiry is trying to trying to achieve. Uh, he said, "I will conduct a robust investigation without fear or favour." that will arrive at the facts, identify any lessons that need to be learned, make recommendations for Scottish ministers. So without fear or favour, um, is the inquiry looking at vaccine injury without fear or favour? In my opinion, no. Um, they spoke about, at the inquiry, they mainly spoke about the COVID bereaved and they spoke about the care home bereaved. There was no, there's 37 groups that are in that inquiry there was no mention of the vaccine injured. Now, where we were sitting, David, was at the very front. We were at the very front of that inquiry. They couldn't ignore us. We had the media behind us. We were the first the first group there that the media would see. And, you know, the quote that you've just said there, he wants to do a very robust inquiry with no fear. Well, the question is, if there's no fear, as the vaccine injured group who are participating in this, we are not allowed to speak about our vaccine injury. So how is this man going to get to the bottom of it if the vaccine injured cannot speak about their vaccine injury unless there is something that maybe that I've missed, but that's what we've been told as of far, as so far. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand the justification for this is because to avoid conflict with the inquiry in London, but the inquiry in London speaking to politicians and this one will eventually do so as well. So there doesn't seem to be the same concern about the overlap there just when it comes to vaccine injury. Um, the uh, Have you seen any sort of uh, political involvement with any politicians uh, at the initial meeting? What, what, sort of, what sort of response no. or there was, there was support you had from the Scottish government? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You, you know, you, you filmed me a few months ago, back in April, I believe. I went to the Scottish, I went to the Parliament building, asking them for help, gave them flyers. And what did they do? They, instead of saying, right, we acknowledge that you exist, we acknowledge that you're there and we're willing to try and speak to you. You know, they spent millions of funding on to advertise for this thing, push it out, give it to the people. But as soon as it went wrong, they didn't care. And instead of saying, we acknowledge you're there, John, and the, the vaccine injured group, what did they do? They gave me a six-month ban. They sent me an email to say, you've, you've got a six-month ban. Now, I'd, when, I, when I had went into that with but, that video... So, sorry. So, sorry, John. You, you're, you're banned from the Parliament? I'm banned from the Parliament building for standing up and protesting. But I wasn't protesting. I was there to, um, I was there to ask them for help. Because they they're still not acknowledging it, David. As simple as that. Well, that's that's all very worrying, John. Uh, look, I I hope you'll be able to join us for a for a longer examination of all of this soon, and uh, that that the that the listening project actually lives up to its name, and someone hears uh, the story. Someone from the official inquiry is prepared to hear the stories, uh, the evidence that's coming from the Scottish uh, Vaccine Injury Group, and we'll just uh, close on your contact uh, details here. So uh, this, this next slide has uh, the URL for your group if anyone wishes to get in touch. And uh, John, would you like to say anything in closing about the work that you're doing within the, uh, yeah, just, the, 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 within the group? 
Yeah, just like I say, if there's anybody out there in Scotland and you've taken that thing, we can't blame everything, David, but we can sure as hell question it. Um, For anyone else just wondering what else I'll be doing, I've started up a podcast in the near future. I'm doing very in-depth interviews with people that have, you know, been injured, lost loved ones. And I've done one the other day with a woman that works in a funeral parlour for 10 years, and my God. The stories I've heard, the deaths, the baby deaths, it's absolutely shocking. So that's something that I'll be doing in the future, David, and I'm I'm pretty sure you'll be on it as well, eh, mate? <laughs> well, I certainly hope so. Uh, Joe, until, uh, maybe you can join us for extra time. I do hope so. Until then and until later, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, David, and thank you very much to John as well. So, uh, Mark, let's uh, come to you now and uh, the World Health Organization. What's the latest? Well, it's more about the Associated Press, the illustrious wire service that's been misinforming America largely and the world for over a century. And what we just heard, of course, was the media largely ignoring things about COVID. But here we have media meddling. And this is becoming a pandemic in and of itself, you might say, an informational pandemic. Here we have the article from September 1st, Associated Press, woman, describing, they know what a woman is, that's a, that's a good step, right? Woman describing t- pandemic plans for a soft coup is not a WHO representative. So this is one of their fact-checking articles. The AP is doing these all the time now. And they, they don't describe right away in the article who the woman they're talking about is. In fact, it takes them eight or nine paragraphs to get around to telling you who it is. Now, this is MEP Francesca Donato out of Italy. And it turns out she's not the woman they're talking about, but she's the first speaker um, on a video that's over uh, over four hours long um, from a, a particular event. And that event was a, a global summit number three um, uh, held at the uh, uh, European Parliament. And Francesca Donato um, is the first speaker. There's 22 speakers uh, at that uh, recent summit that was held at the uh, uh, Brussels, Belgium, European Parliament back in May. And this is where the AP article is coming in. Now, kind of bear with me here. You, you'd think they're talking about Francesca. She's the first speaker out of some 22 that spoke. And she's a member of the European Parliament, as I noted. Um, She's part of the group Identity and Democracy at the European Parliament due to her position against the EU digital COVID certificate in September of 2021. She was expelled from uh, both from Lega Nord and the Identity and Democracy group and became an independent as well as, um, I'm not sure what that is, a a non- I don't know. Yeah. Member of the of the uh, European Parliament. On March 2nd of 2022, she voted against condemning the Russian invasion of Ukraine, along with 12 other MEPs after sharing news which were identified as fake news. This is according to Wikipedia. Her Facebook page was closed in March of 2022. So Francesca has been deemed almost persona non grata in MEP circles and and other circles by the media. Uh, This is a little bit more about her. Uh, This is the COVID-19 pandemic, lessons learned and recommendations for the future debate. She was involved in that. And on the next slide, we'll learn a little bit more. Um, 
She's on the special committee on the COVID-19 pandemic, lessons learned and recommendations for the future. So she's a pretty brave lady here that's uh, in the European Parliament. And here's the actual meddlesome Associated Press article itself. And kind of bear with me, I'm kind of coming at this in a circuitous way. Here's the claim. A video shows a World Health Organization representative discussing plans the agency is, is developing as a way to disregard human rights protections in the name of pandemic preparedness. But the Associated Press assessment is that this is false. The woman in the video does not work for the WHO, nor was she speaking on its behalf. A spokesperson for the United Nations Agency told the Associated Press, so the AP is simply taking the word of WHO spokesman as gospel here in declaring, um, in making its declarations. The spokesperson for the, U for the WHO also confirmed that the WHO is not developing any such plans to take away human rights as described in the video. The facts, according to the a AP, social media users are sharing select footage from a May 2023 conference featuring multiple speakers. That's this um, COVID um, conference that was held in May at the European Parliament, um, featuring multiple speakers known for spreading what AP is calling COVID-19 misinformation. The video is edited to make it appear the woman whose credentials are not mentioned is speaking on behalf of the WHO at a press conference or a gathering of the entire European Parliament. That's absolutely false. I watched most of the video. It's not edited that way at all. There's nothing that makes her look like a WHO representative. And if somebody did put that on social media, that would be incorrect. So that's the only way and that small way that the Associated Press would be correct in calling this out. But there was never any actual attempt to make her look like a WHO spokesman. And we'll, we'll reveal in a little bit who the actual woman um, was that the, that the Associated Press is referring to. In the video, the woman sits in front of a blue backdrop that includes the European Parliament logo and the address of its website. She speaks of a soft coup, which she did, that will allow for human rights such as freedom of speech to be disregarded in the name of pandemic preparedness. Among other, among other alleged evidence, she claims that a WHO treaty is part of this plan. Now we'll move on from there. I believe we have a video of Francesca Donato. And the, keep in mind, she's not the woman that's being, um, that's being criticized, but the AP. But when, when we look at what Francesca has to say and we look at the whole picture, you realize just how much the AP is taking this whole thing out of context and not actually reporting on this recent conference held at the European Parliament, had they reported on it objectively and broadly, you would see what was actually going on. So this really shows just how much the media is meddling and um, skewing this issue. So first we'll listen to Francesca. This is a short clip and then we'll go from there. As am I a member uh, of the European Parliament, I want to take the opportunity immediately to focus on a political point, which is of interest of the European institutions. The European Court of Auditors, in its audit of the management of joint purchases of the so-called COVID vaccines, expressly recommended that the Commission review the contractual clauses that shield the multinational manufacturers from any liability 
for damages due to adverse effects to inoculated people once final marketing approval is released. With the period of conditional approval for emergency use having ended, therefore, any alibi for relieving the pharmaceutical companies for, from all responsibility has lapsed after they have been profiting hundreds of billions of euros from the sale of these drugs thanks to millions of euros received in public funding for research and development of them. So you see, there's, there's very important things being announced here. And yet the Associated Press, even though Francesca is the first speaker, one of about 22 that I counted, um, they're actually talking about someone else. And in, in this next slide, they finally reveal eight or nine paragraphs later that the woman in the video that they're referring to and criticizing is a doctor from Maine, Meryl Nass, N like Nancy, A-S-S, whose license was suspended by the state of Maine in January of 2022 for spreading misinformation, AP says, about COVID-19. Margaret Harris, a WHO spokesperson, confirmed that NAS does not work for the agency and that she was not speaking on its behalf at the conference. Again, there was absolutely no indication whatsoever that she tried to claim or anyone else tried to claim uh, in the video of that conference uh, from this past May that she was a WHO representative. And by the way, the official name of that was the International COVID Summit 3, Part 2, 3 in Roman numerals, Part 2, International COVID Summit 3, Part 2, held this past spring. And here in this next slide, uh, we finally look at who the AP is criticizing, Maine physicians suspended for COVID misinformation. Licensing agency says Merrill Nass must undergo neuropsych exam. Get that, must undergo a neuropsych exam for her claims about COVID vaccine. And a, a little text I inserted in the lower right here, the Maine Board of Licensure ordered the immediate suspension of the license of, of, a, of a physician, excuse me, accused of spreading COVID-19 misinformation, and in a separate order Tuesday, ordered her to undergo a neuropsychological evaluation by a board-selected psychologist. And so this is getting very Orwellian, and we'll move on from there. And we have a short clip of what she actually had to say. Now, this isn't everything she had to say. She covered a, a wide range of things um, that the um, COVID pandemic treaty, the international health regulations, uh, digital initiatives for um, vaccine passports, all of that she feels represents a danger to human rights. She covered a lot of that. But here's an important thing she added and focused on at that uh, recent summit. So we'll show this uh, brief video clip. This is... One Health is another part of this. One Health is a concept that was created to enable the WHO with these documents to take over jurisdiction of everything in the world by saying that climate change, animals, plants, water systems, ecosystems are all central to health. Also embedded in this concept is a peculiar notion that humans are no longer of greater value than animals. And I've got the quote there from The Lancet in January. And so what she's doing there, gentlemen, is she's corroborating what I and others at UK 
UK column have reported several months ago that One Health is a philosophical and a strategic, you might say, concept that's hardwired into the WHO's plans for the pandemic treaty and updating the IHR regs. The idea that it's a democratic biosphere and humanity no longer uh, has any special place in that biosphere. And so Meryl Nass is no idiot. You might disagree with her, but you can see this is a classic museum museum level uh, example, you might say, of how the media does a thin, razor thin slice of reality, presents it as the big picture while ignoring the overall summit and what was said by 22 speakers, including Robert Malone, the American doctor. So uh, this this whole thing is just being completely skewed and ignored and papered over just so okay. they can criticize social media and particular uh, partic- particular things that, that appear on social media. Yeah. There is one more Mark, thing Mark, I can share. We'll, we'll just yeah. we'll have to we have to move on, Mark. So so thank you very much for that. That is really useful. Now we've got to move on because uh, we've got a lot to cover today. So Thank you very much for that. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share and think find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, now, tomorrow uh, at, in the 1 p.m. interview slot, Alex uh, is speaking to uh, Dr. Anna Lufty, uh, who's uh, speaking about uh, the situation with children and sexual education with children. So get along to that uh, at 1 p.m. tomorrow in the usual place. And very quickly, please, David, uh, what's going on uh, with No to War? This is uh, my speech from uh, Saturday, 26th of August at at Glasgow Green. Uh, That will be premiering on uh, the Northern Exposure YouTube channel on uh, Wednesday at 7, I'd ask people to uh, tune in, have a look at that, and let me know in the comments what you think of what I had to say. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. The link for that, of course, will be in the show notes uh, under the, later on, under this, uh, once we put the, this on the website. Now, let's just uh, move on to this. I've been talking about uh, the types of legislation uh, that have been coming through Parliament uh, in recent months. And, uh, uh, you know, of course, I'm making the point here, you can't look at any individual piece of legislation uh, in its uh, as a singular thing, and not be concerned about what else is going on uh, in the country. I want to add another uh, piece of legislation to this list now, and it has been getting a little bit of media coverage over the last couple of days, uh, and that's the energy bill. Now, just to give an idea of uh, what this is, let's just read the preamble to the text of this. It says, "It's a bill to make provision about energy production and security." and the regulation of the energy market, including provision about the licensing of carbon dioxide transport and storage, about commercial arrangements for industrial carbon capture and storage and for hydrogen production, about new technology, including low carbon heat schemes and hydrogen grid trials, about the independent system operator and planner, about gas and electricity industry codes, about heat networks, about energy smart appliances and load control, about the energy performance of premises, about Uh, the resilience of the core fuel sector about offshore energy production, including environmental protection, licensing and decommissioning, uh, about the civil nuclear sector, including the civil nuclear constabulary and for connected purposes. And what we seem to see increasingly with bills that are going through the UK Parliament is they're extremely broad in scope. This is something we seem to be grabbing from the United States and making bills uh, 
covering a whole range of, of areas. And of course, under those circumstances, uh, stuff gets snuck in that perhaps uh, wouldn't normally be noticed. Um, so if we just put that back on screen for a second, about the energy of performance of premises, that's what the focus of this is about. And I just want to bring part 10 of the bill on screen here. Energy performance of premises, the Secretary of State may make regulations for any of these purposes. So first of all, may make regulations. This is about what happens in the future. So the bill doesn't actually say what the Secretary of State's going to do. Through secondary legislation, that statutory instrument, he's going to do stuff in the future. And those purposes might be enabling or requiring the energy usage or energy efficiency of premises to be assessed, certified, and publicized, enabling or requirement, requiring possible improvements to the, in the energy usage or energy efficiency of premises to be identified and recommended, and C, restricting or prohibiting the marketing and disposal of premises on the basis of whether their energy usage or energy efficiency has been assessed, certified, or publicized. Now, this is exactly what's been going on in France. I'll show you this in a second, but basically what this means is you cannot rent or sell your house if you don't have a particular level of energy certification in your house. So if your house is older and you don't have suitable, um, uh, you know, suitable, uh, can't think of the word, uh, anyway, we'll move on. Uh, and uh, new rules for selling house in France. As I say, this is what's been going on in France already. So, so if you don't have the correct energy certification for your home in France, uh, there are restrictions on how you can sell your house. They're talking about bringing that into the UK as well. Uh, but here's where it gets even more insidious because there's a segment in the bill on sanctions. Uh, the enforcement provision that may be made includes provision for A, for a person with public functions to enforce a requirement imposed by or under energy performance regulations uh, about the sanctions for non-compliance with the requirement imposed by or under energy performance regulations, about the sanctions for the provision of false information in connection with such a requirement, or about the sanctions for the obstruction of or impersonation of an enforcement authority or a person acting for an enforcement authority. So what are they talking about here? What kind of sanctions are they actually talking about? Well, what they're saying is that energy performance regulations may provide for the imposition of civil penalty penalties by enforcement authorities in relation to cases falling within uh, B, C, and D in the, the slide we just showed you. But the regulations may not provide for a civil penalty that exceeds £15,000. So you could be in receipt of a £15,000 fine if you don't conform with what the government is demanding. And of course, we don't know what the government's demanding because that all comes in secondary legislation later on. Uh, and the second part of this is with re reference to criminal uh, sanctions. So energy performance regulations may provide for the creation of criminal offences in relation to sec uh, subsection 1B, C or D. Uh, but the regulations may not provide for a criminal offence to be punishable with imprisonment for a term exceeding 12 months. So it could be up to 12 months imprisonment, but here's the thing, uh, for a criminal offence to be punishable with a fine of more than, uh, not for a fine of not more than level five on the standard scale. So, okay, that implies that there's some kind of restriction on the level of the fine if, if it's a criminal fine. But when we actually look at uh, the sentencing, sentencing council and look at the limitations on fines, actually a, le a level five fine is unlimited so this could be up to a 12-month prison sentence and an unlimited fine if you don't conform uh, with the government's requirements for energy certification for your property, or if they deem it necessary for you to make adjustments to your property, 
Insulation was the word I was looking for earlier. I'm sorry I couldn't find that word in my head today. But uh, David, this is quite an incredible situation. Now, the government's absolutely denying that they're going to create new criminal offences here, but that's, it's clear, it's black and white. And if they're not going to uh, create criminal offences, they need to drop this subsection from the bill. Indeed they do. And up here in the testing ground, as we like to call it, uh, the Scottish government are already considering uh, making... Uh, House sales uh, re require an energy uh, performance certificate uh, level C, which means no gas boiler for you. You have to fit a heat pump at a very large cost and very inefficient uh, outcome in order to sell your house at all. That's what they're considering. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of pushback against it because it's a crazy idea, but it doesn't always stop them. No, it doesn't. And it hasn't stopped them in France and it clearly isn't going to stop them in the UK either. Now, David, let's move on to uh, the issue of uh, concrete uh, of a certain kind and school buildings. Yes. So this was first mentioned by Debbie Evans in her blog uh, back in uh, September 2022, uh, when she reported Operation Rapture. I wonder who named that one. Uh, Operation Rapture, Rapture would come into effect. Uh, should hospitals collapse, she wrote, concerns about reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete planks for first race in 2018. So uh, this issue has rather blown up over the last few days. So here we see the BBC reporting school closures. Uh, dozens were at risk of collapse, says the BBC, due to risky concrete. More than 100 schools have been told to shut areas affected by uh, reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, RAAC, uh, without safety measures in place. It follows the collapse last week of a beam. I would question whether that's actually correct. Uh, previously thought to be safe. So there's been a single incident, and this has thrown the whole thing into panic. Uh, so a little more on what this problem is technically. Here we have a report from the uh, Standing Committee on Structural Safety. Um, they they uh, report the background to this. In the 1980s, there were many instances of failure of RAAC roof planks. So these are planks that span between main beams forming roof uh, flat roof structures. Installed during the mid-1960s, and a large proportion of such installations were subsequently demolished. Um, they go on to say what the warning signs are, so that if there's, if there's a problem with these, uh, with these planks, there tends to be cracking and disruption, um, a lot of deflection, um, the fact that some of them have a small bearing, bearing width is, is, a, is, a, is a sign of, a, of a, they're more likely to be a problem. If the roof has been resurfaced, load added, etc. If there's ponding on the roof or if the roof is leaking, all of these are warning signs. And they also go on to explain what this material is. And I think we, sh we should just take a moment to understand what we're actually dealing with. So autoclaved aerated concrete is different from normal dense concrete. It has no coarse aggregate. Is made in factories using fine aggregate and, and a chemical to create gas bubbles uh, and, a, and heat to cure the compound. It is weak and has low capacity for developing bond with embedded reinforcement. When it's used to form structural units, the protection of the reinforcement against corrosion is provided by a bitumen or cement latex coating applied to the reinforcement before it's cast in because the, the actual structure, which is like aero chocolate, doesn't provide any... Uh, protection of the reinforcement against against rusting. Um, so we've got here a little photograph to show what the material looks like and you see aero is quite a good description of it uh, and you see also here a, 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 an example of the failure that gave rise to the 2018 report and the failure that circled 
It's the diagonal crack that indicates shear cracking. That's a particular concern because you don't get much warming of that sort of failure. Now, the response politically has been strange. So here we see the Times reporting concrete uh, closures. Tories ignored the RWAC risk. Um, and a civil servant's come out and uh, said that ministers ignored pleas to rebuild more schools despite warning that crumbling concrete posed a critical risk to life, a former civil servant has said. This is Jonathan Slater. He blames Sunak for cutting repair budgets even further, accusing ministers of a political decision to prioritise new free schools over repairing dangerous buildings. I would point out, and I hate having to defend Rishi Sunak because... I don't want to do it, but that's garbage, right? The buildings weren't known to be dangerous because otherwise a whole raft of legislation uh, governing dangerous buildings would have swung into action and they wouldn't have been allowed to, be, to remain open. Um, the critical risk to life statement is completely hyperbolic. This is seeking to smear Rishi Sunak with this problem, which is odd someone's taken a political decision to do that. Um, moving on to building design. Uh, they're saying, well, what's actually happened? Well, we've got 156 schools have got this, uh, this material in them. 52 were deemed a critical risk and safety measures have been put in place. The remaining 104 are non-critical but have to be vacated and restricted until appropriate mitigation is in place. Um, and the Department of Education said that new evidence had emerged over the summer which required buildings to close immediately. So this is something that's happened very recently. The independent gives a clue that one beam, so one failure somewhere, and I don't think it would be a beam because that's not what these, this material was used for, uh, forced over 100 schools to close. Um, so they report uh, that a minister has revealed that one collapsed beam in a school sparked emergency decision to halt the uh, return to classrooms for 100 schools. Um, now, the... Uh, <sighs> We have more. What I'll do is I'll, I'll go through. I've got a little bit more, and I'll go through that in extra. Um, if we can go forward to what the chief engineer, what was described as the chief engineer, has said. So this is, again, from The Times. He said, The Times reports, we knew decades ago, says actually the former uh, president of the Institution of Structural Engineers, uh, that, that RAAC has been missold by manufacturers since the late 1960s. Some of us, in fact, quite a lot of us at the time, wouldn't touch it with a barge pole, said Dr. John Roberts. Now, this is quite right. This is, this, this is true. It was known to be a problem. It's been known to be a problem uh, all of my career in engineering. And um, it's a problem that has been handled by inspection, by assessment, by judging the risk. And for some reason over the summer, one event which has not been reported on, and I can find no technical information on so far, we will try and find more, has completely changed the entire approach to managing this problem, kind of like the way that, that, that all the medical profession changed when COVID came along. Panic has set in, and we're closing schools left, right, and centre, and this all seems very odd. It's a, it, we certainly need to understand what on earth happened that gave rise to such an apparently panicked and extreme response to a problem that has been known and has been understood and has been managed for ooh, 30 years. Yeah. We'll find out more if we can. Yes, brilliant. Okay, thank you, David. Now let's uh, just briefly uh, move on to Ukraine. And first of all, the news that the uh, Ukrainian uh, Defence Minister, uh, Ruslan, uh, sorry, 
uh, Reznikov, sorry, has uh, had to resign, or was he did so? Did he jump, or was he pushed? Well, this is a good question. If you look in the mainstream press, some people saying he resigned. He's, his tweet is certainly saying resigned. Other people saying that he was sacked, and certainly uh, what uh, Zelensky is saying implies that he was sacked, uh, because Zelensky's uh, quote was that I believe that the defense ministry uh, needs new approaches and other formats of interaction with both the military and society at large. So that seems to be an indication he was pretty, uh, finally pretty unhappy with with uh, what the defense ministry was doing. Uh, he needs to move on. Uh, it's, things aren't going so well. Um, so anyway, uh, Zelensky then pushed out uh, a little piece of video uh, and uh, he was talking about, in fact, his major uh, policy area, his major political goal, as he described it, is opening EU accession talks. So the European Commission has made several recommendations to Ukraine. Uh, we've already completed a number of them, he said. For the rest, the Ukrainian parliament must demonstrate uh, tangible results, timely results, uh, the ones we agreed on with the European Commission, uh, and uh, so on. And it's quite interesting. One of the things he was talking about uh, was the new law on politically exposed persons. Now, if you remember, the whole Niger Farage banking scandal uh, was with respect to politically exposed persons, this term, and this now seems to have moved into Ukraine. Um, and uh, so that's, uh, that's the latest on uh, Zelensky and his government. Uh, but then uh, let's move on to this because uh, the uh, Reuters last week or on the 1st of September was uh, uh, claiming an exclusive that the US is now sending depleted uranium munitions to Ukraine. Uh, this is what they had to say. The Biden administration will for the first time send controversial armor-piercing munitions containing depleted uranium to Ukraine according to a document seen by Reuters and separately, separately confirmed by two US officials. Uh, although Britain sent DU munitions to Ukraine earlier this year, this would be the first U.S. shipment of the ammunition and will likely stir controversy, as it should. Um, now, in the meantime, uh, Dmitry Polyansky, who is the Russian Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations, uh, was speaking uh, on a podcast over the weekend, very much uh, concerned that uh, the possibility or the uh, accidental possibility of uh, Russia and NATO coming into a direct clash uh, has increased. We're repeatedly warned that the situation is quite dangerous and there's a big risk of a direct clash between Russia and NATO, is what he was saying on a podcast. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, we've got uh, this story doing the rounds, uh, that this tit-for-tat really claim of uh, military inter uh, incursions into airspace on either side of the Polish-Belarusian border. So this is TASS reporting Polish military helicopter violates Belarusian border uh, according to the Belarus State Border Committee. Um, and uh, well, they're saying that on the 1st of September, Belarusian border guards reported a violation of Belarus airspace in the Grodno region from Poland. A Polish uh, Mi-24 military helicopter was uh, flying at extremely low altitude, crossed the state border and got 1,200 metres deep into the Belarusian ter territory before turning back. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Poland saying uh, earlier the two Belarusian helicopters had allegedly uh, violated Poland's border on the 1st of August, uh, and so it goes on. Uh, and although the, the Polish government has denied uh, this latest uh, incursion, uh, nonetheless, this rhetoric is starting to build on both sides of uh, the border. So uh, just a quick update on Ukraine there. But David, uh, let's move over to China. Yeah, so just watching the Chinese economic situation develop, the Times here is uh, reporting on it. 
And uh, they are saying that uh, the Chinese have got complex problems, including the property sector turmoil, uh, local government debt, um, not much in the way of consumption. Um, and they're, they're looking at those calls for Xi Jinping to uh, essentially do what the Western governments would do, which is unleash billions of dollars to shore up spending and make the whole thing seem okay for just a little while. Um, the Chinese leadership, probably quite wisely, is not going down that road. Um, and they're going to be okay with slower growth rates um, and they're wanting to avoid instability in their financial system, which is a jolly good thing. Now, uh, we've got here the Carnegie uh, Endowment for International Peace. It was a blog post by Michael Pettis, which is well worth having a read of. A um, couple of things here I want to highlight. One is the level of debt, right? There's enormous debt. So we're talking here, this is GDP versus TSF, that's total social financing, which is um, basically private sector debt from banks uh, through the bond market and through the share market. Um, and the, the total debt to G GDP ratio is approaching 300% there. It's enormous. Um, and uh, the article goes on to explain some of the why. They say China invests 42 to 44% of GDP in, uh, back into its economy. This is extraordinary. Uh, an average would be about 25% of mature economy, maybe 15 to 20%. Um, and they explain that when China began its reform and opening up in the 80s, its economy, after five de decades of war against the Japanese, civil war and Maoism, was severely underinvested for its level of social development. What the economy needed above all was significant investment, transportation and infrastructure and property and manufacturing facilities. And this is why it benefited from a very high investment rate. But the problem is now um, it's, it's gone way beyond that. They're still running huge levels of investment. It's malinvestment. They're, inv they're investing in assets that are not needed and that cannot generate enough income to service the debt. That debt is piling up on private uh, ledgers, on local government ledgers, and on central government ledgers, and on bank ledgers. And somebody is going to have to carry the can the losses which are real need to be realised. Um, the uh, article goes on um, saying that th this is either, to, to have this huge level of investment, you either need to, need to have a very high level of saving um, or, or incoming investment. And um, it's, been, it's been financed by saving, but the, the, the flip side of this is, is that consumption, household consumption has been very low. This next graph shows just how low it is and how it's fallen since the year 2000. So as a percentage of GDP, uh, household consumption by domestic households in China is massively lower than it was in the year 2000. So the, the people are not benefiting from the economic activity. Um, now go on here to, uh, to the final slide here is from a, a very good uh, piece by Patrick Boyle. It's an excellent uh, economics and market commentator. Uh, his piece is, is YouTube videos entitled China Don't Say Deflation. And it shows here um, how much of um, household wealth is sitting in the property market in China. Now, real estate in China is, is two thirds of all, all uh, household wealth is in real estate, which is massively more than Japan, massively more than, than the United States. Now, the issue is here, the real estate market is a giant bubble. There's been malinvestment. The, the prices are hugely inflated. They've dropped 14%, which is more than half the level of equity 
that's normally put into a house by someone buying a home in China. So anyone who's bought a home recently has seen half their equity wiped out. And, and the prices must have much further to fall. This is going to create huge internal problems within China. It's going to create a lot of friction within the society. It's going to have all of the problems we are familiar with from 2008, but on steroids. And the issue I would ask people to consider is what under those circumstances will the Chinese government do to quell the inevitable pushback from the population? Okay, thank you for that, David. Now let's uh, move then to Africa. Uh, and obviously after the death of uh, Prigozhin, uh, the question has been uh, on everybody's lips, what's the Wagner Group going to do or what's Russia going to do in China? Well, let's uh, get an indication because uh, here's for African news. Uh, Russian army officials received in Libya. Uh, and uh, so this was uh, 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 Colonel, sorry, the, the Deputy Defence Minister, Colonel General, uh, not sure quite why that says uh, both those, but anyway, uh, Yevkarov, and he began a tour of the Sahel and the North and North Africa last week. So he began in Libya on the 23rd of August. Uh, this is the first official visit of a Russian military delegation to Libya, said the uh, Russian Defence Minister. Ministry during the visit it is planned to discuss prospects for cooperation in combating international terrorism and other issues of joint action. Uh, he then went on from Libya to visit Burkina Faso. He met the president there. Then he went to Mali, uh, where he met uh, Mali's interim presidential president, uh, Colonel uh, Goeta, and uh, he discussed bilateral defense and security cooperation as well as the situation in the Sahel. And then from Mali, he traveled. Uh, on the 1st of September to the Central African Republic. Uh, and of course, that is one of the areas that uh, the Wagner Group was particularly uh, busy in. Um, in the meantime, well, the, <laughs> let's uh, not uh, leave Britain out of it because uh, this is Andrew Mitchell. Uh, he is uh, or has been uh, in Rwanda, uh, held a courtesy meeting uh, in Rwanda, the UK Minister for State uh, for Development in Africa, who's in Rwanda for a four-day visit. They discussed further strengthening the existing bilateral relations between Rwanda and the UK. And he is in turn uh, heading off from there uh, to Kenya, uh, where the UK is backing uh, projects for, guess what, a Green New Deal. Uh, so that's uh, what Britain's doing in the area. In the meantime, uh, the, the situation in Niger continues to build. Uh, thousands rally in Niger to, to demand the withdrawal of French troops, not only French troops, but the French ambassador uh, the French ambassador was asked to leave the country, I think, on the 28th of August, of August uh, and he refused to go. Uh, and so uh, he is now being asked to leave uh, and also French troops being asked to leave. Uh, the EU uh, wanted to bring sanctions in against the uh, leaders in Niger. Uh, and France is now suspending military cooperation with the new, well, what this uh, RFI is describing as a new regime in Gabon. Now, we were talking about Gabon on Friday's programme. Uh, but uh, clearly, uh, the situation getting very tense in Africa. And of course, as we knew it would, because uh, this is an area that the EU particularly claims as its southern neighborhood. Tony Blair is extremely active there. Uh, and uh, of course, Russia and China extremely active in the region as well. So this is, I well, I personally believe this is the next uh, battlefront uh, in the war against Russia and China. Uh, but we'll see how that goes. Now, let's uh, move on, David, to the United States and uh, Donald Trump. Yes, yeah, so we've got the Wall Street Journal reporting. Now, I saw a wonderful cartoon of Donald Trump as a pinata, and all the press were hitting him with sticks. But what was falling out was, was uh, 
vote Trump badges and people were picking them up. And this is this is actually what's happening. So the Wall Street Journal reports here um, that a new survey has found um, that uh, the once a two-man race has collapsed to a lopsided contest in which Trump, for now, has no challenger. The former president is the top choice of 59% of GOP voters, up 11 points since April. So there's no doubt that Donald Trump, on current figures, is going to win the nomination for um, the Republican Party. In fact, he's so far ahead, he's not even going to the debates because he rather considers it's all the also-rans bickering and he doesn't want to be part of it. So what's the, what's the, the um, and Democrat response going to be to this? Well, here we have uh, public service, uh, public broadcasting service reporting, Liv liberal groups seek to use the 14th Amendment to block Trump from the 2024 ballot. The 14th Amendment bars anyone who wants to an oath to uphold the Constitution but then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against it. A growing number of legal scholars say this post-Civil War clause applies to Trump after his role in trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election and encouraging his backers to storm the US Capitol, uh, which of course he didn't do. Um, so just want you to enjoy the moment here of complete lunacy. We've got one half of the population uh, heavily backing the former president and the response is, well, we're not going to let him run because that's uh, that's the democratic way to conduct uh, an election. It's becoming more and more like a banana republic, the United States. Uh, it it ab absolutely is. And Mark, uh, we've got more on Trump and uh, elections and so on. Uh, perhaps some facts that the BBC isn't quite aware of. Oh, this is absolutely amazing. And if you want me to do a little extra in extra on this, I can in the interest of time. But over at Voter GA, probably the most competent and uh, fact conscious organization there is in the U.S. looking at the 2020 elections and beyond there. Uh, they had a press conference very recently uh, on the 29th of um, or excuse me, uh, a, a little earlier in the month. But anyway, here we're looking at a slide. The Fulton District Attorney Fannie Willis misapplied the Georgia law throughout the 41 count indictment against Donald Trump and some 18 others uh, covering four states, Georgia being one of them, as we're showing here, the other states, Florida, New York, and then in Washington, D.C. Um, and voter GA led by Garland Favrito, a contact of mine there, he's from the Atlanta area in Georgia, uh, has been doing Yalman's work on this. And basically, they're calling it Fanny's Phony 40. And uh, you can go to VoterGA.org for a lot more on this. And there's a 19, excuse me, a 98-page document that basically has the acts, the laws that is uh, in Georgia that are supposedly being violated by Trump and his crew, and also has the indictments. And... Um, the there was a case number and a judge both assigned to this case before the grand jury even voted on it and there's all sorts of anomalies uh, looking at this slide here abiding by the election challenge uh, what fanny willis claimed on august 14th at a press conference was rather than abide by georgia's legal process for election challenges the defendants, Trump and crew, engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn the results of Georgia's presidential election. And um, they're saying Trump's attorney filed the December 4 
but this is what Garland Favorito is actually saying to set the record straight. Um, what Fannie Willis said is not true at all. Trump's attorneys actually filed a December 4, 2020 election challenge in Fulton County. The challenge was required to be heard in 20 days. That didn't happen. The Fulton, Fulton County did not assign a judge until December 31st, more than 20 days later. And the hearing was scheduled January 8th, two days after Congress certified the, uh, the votes. And that was two days after the uh, uh, so-called riot there, um, the January 6th infamous riot on Capitol Hill. And so Trump and crew actually did file the right process, as voter GA uh, has revealed in a very recent press conference since that press conference held by Fannie Willis. Um, what, but Garland Favorito and VoterGA.org are saying here is that many statements made by Trump and crew are actually true, contrary to the DA there in Georgia. Most statements can likely be true, proven, proven true if the evidence could be presented in court, which largely has not happened. And the defendants, Trump and company, did not knowingly, willfully, and unlawfully make false statements contrary to the to the uh, DA in Fulton County in Georgia. And even false statements are free speech protected by the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. In other words, you have the right to be wrong as long as you're not engaging in libel or slander. And uh, this next slide uh, reveals some interesting facts, and we'll comb through this quite quickly. We can always do more reflection in, in extra. Um, Garland Favrito of Voter GA, the leader of that group, is saying that at least 96,600 mail-in ballots were counted in the November 3rd, 2020 presidential election in Georgia, despite there being no record of those ballots having been returned to a county elections officer. And we'll move on from there. That's a very interesting and revealing statement. And this is kind of the capstone for today. Uh, this is part one, by the way. There's a lot to unpack here. Uh, in the next two UK column reports next week and or the following week, I'm going to do part two. And I, I talked to Garland last night to get this particular quote that we're looking at now. There's going to be a lot more because it reveals just how much the media is covering up and just how big the lie really is here. But here's the capstone for today. Georgia, and this is from Garland Favorito himself. I spoke to him last night. Georgia now claims Biden won the November 3rd, 2020 election by 11,779 votes. But on the morning of November 4, 2020, Georgia's Secretary of State acknowledged that Trump was ahead by 103,750 votes after 4.7 million people had voted, with only 94,000 left to count, which is 2% of 4.7 million. But the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, a Republican, by the way, then certified another 200,000 plus phantom votes over a three-day period, bringing the total overall vote count to 4.998 million. In parentheses, this is an editor's note, those phantom ballots apparently have never been physically disclosed nor inspected and remain under wraps. So it's completely opaque whether Biden actually won Georgia at all, um, and the uh, 11,779 margin that he supposedly won by is razor thin. And you have a couple hundred thousand plus ballots that have not really been um, uh, certified to have been counted or counted accurately. So what Garland is basically saying in summary is that there's a lot of things that have never been taken to court. And there's uh, huge anomalies here. 
There's lots of reasons to believe that, that Trump actually won Georgia. And what does that say for the other states that Biden allegedly won to secure the election? Michigan, a battleground state, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, et cetera. A lot of that will be covered in part two. Yeah. But uh, this is very compelling evidence uh, that much, much has been misreported in a very big way about those elections. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Mark. And uh, of course, this has a major impact on the ongoing indictments and so on. We'll talk about a little, about, a little bit more about that in extra. Thank you very much to everybody. Thank you to John Watt for joining us today. And uh, thank you to David and Mark as well. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes for some extra if you're a UK column member. Uh, do uh, join us at 1 p.m. tomorrow for the interview we talked about in the ad break. And we will see you as usual at 1 p.m. on Wednesday. Have a great uh, day and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.